0: Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts.
1: Life is too short to learn a a list of a thousand rando words.
0: From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.
1: Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, senior lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford. And I am with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who's
0: dean at the Graduate School of Education. Denise? Dr. Language, Higher Education, and Race Pope.
1: Whoa, that's a yeah. lot of things. Language, yeah. Higher Education, and mm-hmm. Race. That's
0: yeah, yeah. I don't think that was a good name. That is the topic, so it's not that bad. <laughs> let, let, me, let me let me back into this a little bit and sort of see how you respond to this, given that you you are sort of John Q. Public here. Uh, I am.
1: I am. Okay. I'm Jane Q. Public. Gotcha. Okay. So,
0: so it's a college admissions essay. I'm writing a college admissions essay. Should I be allowed to use a word processor that corrects my spelling?
1: Since the majority of word processors do that these days, I would say yes. Okay. And I think college admissions people know that.
0: Okay. Will you allow me to use one that corrects my grammar?
1: Well, again, sort of a lot of these do that automatically. And if you're applying to something that is considered high stakes, like a college or a job, I would say as a former high school English teacher, you would want at least another set of eyes. And if that's what your grammar program does... I'm all for that. Again, people know that these things are out there. So it's, well, it's going to be could, worse if you have bad grammar and you haven't done that. Well, we,
0: we, could make, we could make people handwrite their essays. Well, okay, so, so, could. Let me, <laughs> so let me go further. So these systems are getting pretty smart. So like, I don't know if you've noticed, my email client is now suggesting sentences that I put oh, in.
1: Yeah, mine too. Like yeah, yeah. you want to say so, this?
0: So now I'm writing my college essay and it's saying things like, talk about your father here. Okay,
1: well, I don't know what program you have. Mine doesn't do that. Mine is like, do you want to say thanks or sounds good? Right.
0: But it it is getting to the point where these programs could write paragraphs for you. Okay. And is that okay?
1: Okay. Well, so then I think we have to go into sort of what is the whole purpose of using this? This is a task that is used to sort of sort and rank people. And there's going to be issues with it all along. There are issues with it all along, right? So who has the money, who has the experience, who has the double college educated parents who have the time, who speak the language, et cetera, who can give you all that help. And now you've got a program that someone's going to afford and give you all that help. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to rethink how we use writing as then a sorting and ranking mechanism. Or, Or
0: maybe writing is just no longer important. The machines can do it. So here, here's- Okay, Dan, here's, no. I, I knew I would get you on the way. <laughs> no. so, so how about this? So now I've got an AI program that yeah. can sort of write my essay. It's, it's going to be kind of generic, but it might learn to put in random facts about my life in there.
1: Okay. Right? AI, and just again, artificial, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence,
0: yes. Yeah. So now I get a choice. Do I want it to have a British accent, a Southern accent in the way it's writing, a Los Angeles accent? Oh, boy. An African-American accent. What what button do you think people choose?
1: This is a weird question, Dan, right? Because, well, I was called a valley girl. I am a valley girl. I grew up in Southern California. Right. And there are certain things that I say or used to say or sometimes maybe still slip in. Right. For sure. For sure. Radical. I don't know.
0: So are you going to include that in your essays? You're going to have the um, machine do valley girl?
1: when I teach students how to write, one of the big things you have to think about is audience and purpose. So I would say if it's appropriate, yes. And if it's not based on your audience and purpose, no. And so then I would choose maybe the language accordingly.
0: And so college admission essay, would you want to include information that sort of diagnoses some of your demographic information?
1: Well, college admissions essay is different because I tell students that, that it should really be authentic and come from them. And so I don't want them to try to talk like someone who they're not. That's a different thing from like if I'm writing for a scholarly journal and I know that they're looking for certain, a certain voice, maybe I will not do that or at the very least tone it down or note why I'm doing it. Right. So audience and purpose, I would say, come come really
0: into play. I find there's an interesting challenge here, which is on the one hand, I want to use language that is uh, highly communicative and shows off what I can do or what the machine can do. At the same time, I kind of want to include enough information that I can be profiled. So that that people, you can
1: be profiled.
0: That you can be profiled. And so the concern is, are you, do you want to not profile yourself, make it so that you're using, say, the Queen's English and nobody knows where you come from? Or do you want to sort of own the kind of language that you do use? And include that, which means you sort of get profiled.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is this is what we're going to be talking about was, today. Was that, I'm excited. Was that, we have was an that understandable. Yeah. Or, oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Good. 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 I don't so, know that
1: people will say I want to be profiled. that That word is usually associated with a negative connotation. But I want them to see the real me. I mean, the whole point of communication is that other people understand you. And that you feel like you can be uh, authentic, but, you know, when and where and why, I think is what we're going to talk about today. So I'm okay. really excited. So
0: we're very fortunate to have Anne Charity-Hudlin. She is a professor of education at Stanford's Graduate School of Education, and Anne studies language and education and how linguistic experiences of students interact with their learning. So Anne has a new book called Talking College that specifically explores Black language practices in higher education. So welcome, Anne.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What do you make of this conversation that Denise and I are having? Or is it just making your skin crawl? Or?
2: Save us, Anne. Save us. <laughs> I was thinking of questions as you started. And one of the big ones that we are trying to press with our research and in our practice is who makes the decision? So if I'm thinking about not just who an audience is practically, but if I'm thinking about my imaginary audience, example for a college essay or even for this conversation who do I imagine to be listening and what rules am I then trying to follow linguistically and culturally, with not, so not just how I, what grammar I use, but what references I make light of to be understood. So there's a default uh, if you think about this in high school education, but also in college, is that you're trying to be understood by the widest audience possible. And that's led us to have a focus on what we refer to as a standardized idea of English but at the same time, does that really make us accessible to the widest audience, number one? And who makes the decisions in that standardization process is the matter of our research.
0: <laughs> no, that was that's really insightful.
1: This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking today with Anne Charity Headley about Black language practices. Should we talk about that? What does that even mean? Can we start there first, Anne?
2: Absolutely. When I talk about Black language practices, I really am referring to the wide linguistic and cultural ways that Black people communicate with each other. The history of how Black people in America came to be, enslavement, segregation, resulted in many people living in communities that were predominantly Black, particularly historically. And now what we see, especially in our college environments is Black people now having greater access to different communities, living in them, participating in them in school environments, and making on the spot decisions about how they wanna communicate with each other and to other people. And so when I think about this, I think about black language being examples of sound and grammar and the vocabulary that we use. But I also think about the strategic decisions that black people are, are making as they gain education, as they work in different jobs, as they try to make community and be understood. So it's very specific and technical on the one hand, it's how I pronounce my words and what grammatical patterns I use, but it's also very broad and social and emotionally centered in that those decisions sometimes are made consciously and actively, and then others, once we get into certain community environments or different learning environments, We can hear ourselves even making these linguistic choices because of how we've been socialized. And so looking at that tension is something that's super important when I think about what Black culture is.
0: Give a concrete example of that, the last point.
2: So I like to start concrete with vocabulary. One example is thinking about the words that we choose to use. And so in a school environment, we have ideas about all the vocabulary that we're supposed to learn to sound like an educated American. And so African Americans have been accused both in the research literature and every day of not having wide vocabularies. One of the things that black people know if they're speaking different language patterns is that we have whole vocabulary content areas that are not even known by white speakers. So I'll give you some examples. I'll ask Dan. Dan, do you know what a kitchen is in black language and culture?
0: I would probably make a really bad guess. Let it go.
2: Let it go. All right. right. So the kitchen is what a lot of black people would call the back bottom part of their hair. So it often (laughs) will have a more like African, we would call it a, a fourth category kind of tight curl in the back. So even if you have straighter hair, often in the back, you'll have that tighter curl pattern. And so people will say, it's your kitchen. And so there's a whole (laughs) culture of understanding like who straightens their kitchen, who leaves it natural, how you deal with it, how your family and caregivers have taught you to deal with this situation. So it's not just the vocabulary item, it's the whole set of hair, cultural practices, identification of black people that surround it, that make the culture and language really all in one. (laughs) So it's not one or the other.
0: But there was uh, the point you were making about sort of my conscious choices. So, like, if you were talking to me, you might not bring up kitchen. You got it. But if it. you did bring up kitchen, it would be a very marked thing that you would do.
2: Yes. Yeah. And it would be marked either in I'm teaching you about the culture or I'm doing it because I want to communicate and express my Black cultural heritage. And I may not want you to understand. I, may, I want you to maybe listen and learn and understand what it means to kind of be outside of that knowledge group. And then for other people, they may not realize that you don't know the, the word because they use it so much in right. their daily life. They don't realize... Right. That that's more of a term that's more in black culture and not general American English.
1: So, Anne, I know sometimes I hear about code switching and people uh, switching back and forth between codes. Is this related, different? How does this how does this fit into what you're studying?
2: Code switching to me, for most people, when they think of it, is they think of those the ways that black people and other groups, if they're switching, go from one language or one language variety to another, And so it has this general kind of sense of now I'm speaking this one variety and now I'm speaking another. For me, the way that I think of it, though, is that all of us are varying our language in er so many different ways all day long. And so what I look at and what I'm thinking about code switching is those salient differences, the choices that I'm making actively, passively, but also the ways that you're understood and other people recognize, oh, this person now to me, seems like they're speaking or writing or signing differently. So I see code switching as something that's not a one in the moment, oh, I caught the code switch, but more of a fluid process of people's own cognition and salience. so I can hear the difference. So right now, to some people who are listening, I may sound pretty standard. They might not even know if I was Black or not. But to other people, based on their linguistic history, they're going to hear things in my speech that make them think maybe that I'm white to other people, they might hear it. Oh, wait, she's got some Southern in there and she's probably Black, probably Mid-Atlantic, right? So a lot of code switching is not just what people do or say, it's how they're heard and who, what the history of the people that are listening brings so to the how, conversation.
0: So bring this uh, to a practical point for higher education. Yeah. If people are this deft with language, what is the trouble they run into in higher education besides making a explicit choice not to use standard English so people, you know, say, wow, that's a grammatical mistake.
2: The challenge we run in higher education is people have fixed notions of what is correct, what is a mistake, what is an error, how things Mm -hmm. should be written, how students should be talking in classes, how they should be writing their papers, and they haven't interrogated the why. They haven't said, well, why is it like this, right? So they'll use arguments like communication or clarity is the big one you see but without thinking about clear to who and where did this come from? And is this really necessary for communication that the grammar be this strict maybe in the writing or presentation? And as I'm doing that, who am I leaving out of the audience? Who am I leaving out of the conversation? And if higher education really is supposed to be about also developing yourself as a person and a scholar, whose voices and whose ideas and whose sense of communication and performance are being left out but also being actively discouraged. So this has to do about acquiring academic skills, but it has a lot to do with belonging and the ways that we create community and the ways that we're teaching students in higher education about what we want the world to be, what we want the world to sound like. And I think that's why the ramifications are bigger than just what someone writes on your paper.
1: And I have a question with that because I teach writing at the grad school. I mean, I don't, I, sorry, I expect students to write essays at the grad school. Sometimes I have like a TA who marks every little grammatical issue. Some, some of our students, English is not their first language and they're going back to countries where they're maybe never going to write in English again. And then we have the whole issue that you just said about sort of what makes sense in terms of identity and, and what people are, are, are saying. Some people listening might say, well, Don't we all have to agree that there's a certain level of X in writing that has to be attained for certain purposes? What would you say to that?
2: No, (laughs) basically we've come down on the side of no. We're basically saying at this point that these are historical agreements and ideas that were brought to bear on people in mostly white places and spaces and people who are making grammar books and dictionaries that didn't even have inclusion as a afterthought in the process. And so while they they don't necessarily reflect the language of most white people, they absolutely do not represent the way that English is used and created across the country and across the world today. And so while they may serve for some people as this idea of showing how smart you are and showing how much you've learned, they serve to keep who's in school, who's in higher ed, who are students, who are faculty, very much at today's status quo. And I don't think we will see the kind of cultural and inclusion changes that we want unless we take on these issues of language because there will always be something wrong to be found with someone who speaks or writes or signs a different language variety of you. And so then once those things are seen as bad or criminal or the reason why, what we see is now We don't have to have old school racism, (laughs) no Blacks allowed, no Spanish speakers welcome. We can just use those grammatical parts to have the same purpose.
1: So much to talk about. This is so exciting. Okay, this is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We will have more with Ann Charity Hudley on Black language practices and sort of who has the power around writing and speaking, particularly in higher ed, next on SiriusXM.
0: This is Schools In. I'm not an expert at this. I'm more expert than you.
1: When you can't read in American society, you are really left out.
0: With Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. From the campus of Stanford University.
1: Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are having a great conversation with Ann Charity-Hedley about Black language practices and when to use them and how we should function in K-12 and higher ed with all these different practices now?
0: If I think very simply about how you solve this, there's kind of two extremes. One extreme is Esperanto. This was an artificial language that everybody was supposed to speak so we could all communicate, right? And we would all know the exact exact same language. I don't think it worked very well. Like I don't know, see any classes these days at college on Esperanto. Another approach is you say, well, No, that's the wrong model. The model is that people are able to communicate in different ways, yet they can still make contact to each other. And so when I look at that, I I kind of have these two opposing sides when I think about that. One is language is so deep in me, like I can't hear my own accent. It's really, it's just so deep in me. But when other people make a grammatical mistake, it sets off alarms in my head right? Not negative alarms. I just can't ignore it. I can't ignore the fact that they use the wrong tense. It just grabs me. So that's one side. It's sort of this, it's this native intolerance for other linguistic expressions that don't fit mine. On the other hand, my friends in Europe say where they speak lots of languages, they all talk about, oh, we butcher one another's languages all the time. It's fine. I sit in meetings and they, they get what I'm talking about. So Anne, can we
2: solve this? I'm an optimist. Because everything that I've understood about how humans have the capacity to learn language allows me to think that we can be way more multilingual in our speaking practices, our writing practices, and our general communicative practices than we're allowing ourselves to be. And your example about your friends in Europe is the right way to go. If you think about the, the uniqueness of the value of monolingualism in the United States, it does not match anywhere else in the world. <laughs> that means that is to say, many countries have multiple official languages and manage to function. And people are able to pick up whole languages, but also understand how languages vary and change. And part of the reason they're able to do this so efficiently is because they're taught it in school as a matter of language practice, but also a matter of value. So it's not just learning the language, but it's also having a healthy respect for that the fact that languages vary within one language and people do speak different languages. And here's how you operate in a multilingual or multivarietal environment. And that's something that we need to enrich in our practices in US schools. So I can still teach bilingualism and have it really be a socially or a culturally oppressive practice if I'm not building my value for bilingualism overall. So that's to say, okay, well, I may just be doing this bilingualism education because I have to, because you speak this language and we have to at least acknowledge this for your success. Or I can say, look, everyone needs bilingualism because that's a way that we're going to learn to be better thinkers, to be better scholars, to be better writers, because we understand variety as a way to learn as a process and not just as an end product.
1: And I have a question that is probably on the mind of of every high school English teacher out there listening, which is, okay, so I hear you and I want to be part of the side that really values this multiplicity. And what does that mean for me in reality of sort of grading papers then?
2: It means that you will start to look at the practices of your students and just start with a moment and say, is this an error? Or may this be part of someone's linguistic practice? And even to be an effective educator in standardized English, knowing the difference can really help you think about how you approach that writing revision or that writing instruction, because those answers come from very different places. So what I would say to most English educators is you don't necessarily have to learn a whole bunch of different language varieties or different languages to take some of the key ideas here to help you be a more effective instructor, and you will start to then encourage your students to see you as a language learner as well as someone who's out instructing about language. And that's an important first step to getting a value of multilingualism in schools and communities. And then you can turn to resources and guides that will help you know if you don't if you can't figure that out or if your students don't even know themselves.
1: So really concretely then, Dan brought up verb endings, right? Different yes. verb endings. So if I come across a student's paper and there's a bunch of verb ending issues, what would you say to the student or how would you approach that as a teacher?
2: So as a teacher, I would look at the verb endings. I would first look and see if I see a pattern. So I'll take an example from African-American English where the third person "s" is often not, needs to be written down or pronounced. It's just not part of the variety. So I would look and i say, okay, this third person "s." Do I see it in the student's writing, is that consistent? Am I seeing this across different students in that year and other years? Now let me ask the student, how does this sound to you? Do you kind of f- have a feeling about why you did it this way or not? And then I would turn to materials that really are abundant in helping people think about the verb patterns of African-American English, where S is not necessarily seen as something that you need for a communication. Then it allows me to start thinking linguistically about, well, you know what? A lot of these S's that we say are so important. The correct and clear language, they're actually linguistically redundant. Meaning they're not giving me new linguistic knowledge. So if I say this is Denise Pope's and Dan Schwartz radio show, <laughs> I can also say this is Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz radio show. And I know by the placement of the noun who this radio show belongs to. And so now I'm able to talk to my students about varieties seeing how this works with verbs, seeing how this works across S's in general in their language variety, and disambiguate these particular grammatical things that mark, I know a different variety or I know a language from effective communication. And then that student can start to see the patterns themselves and then decide what they want to do about it. And that's not to say that they shouldn't or wouldn't want to be masters of different language varieties but it gives them a greater role of linguistic agency in that choice process
1: but you do so you are saying that you do have to teach them or if they say well what's the right way oh you gotta be careful with the right right but if you say and more uh uh, in certain languages people are going to put the s on in others they're not you have to decide
2: when it becomes ambiguous is that right and i can get away from right pretty quickly because i can just name the varieties and, my, yeah. and our students are really efficient at naming the varieties themselves. So I can come in with what I want to call it and I can also ask the students to name it, which is something that we really encourage so that we're not assuming students yeah. speak different varieties or different languages. And that gets me away from the notion of right really quickly. So yes. I might say, this is the way I, Denise Pope, want this written if you're turning in things to me. And that gets me away from right and wrong.
0: But you do, if I understand correctly, there's a lot of different ways that I can express things, but there are ways I can do things that are wrong, right? It's not, it's not as though all language, however you say it is fine, right? There are certain things that within your genre, that's just the wrong way to do it.
2: I would say that it's not part of my community of practices, but wrong gets really tricky when you see how quickly language changes. <laughs>
0: The mm-hmm. thing I'm thinking about is something that's going on right now that's fairly typical. I have a doctoral student who's trying to finish their dissertation. You know, these are 200 pages. It's the first time this person has ever written something that long. And there's sentences in there, which I just can't understand, right? And they they keep changing things within the sentence. And I can go back to them and I can say, I think this is what you're trying to do. I think the reader will be absolutely confused by this. I think I'm right. And she was wrong. Did you ask her, did, could she understand this it? She didn't see it. She didn't see it. You know, you don't, right, you don't. So that's a hint. <laughs> she, well, she's filling in so much, right? You, she's right. putting in pronouns. And she, when she puts in that pronoun in their mind, they know exactly what's there. The reader doesn't, right? The last time the thing, the noun was mentioned was like six pages earlier. So
2: Right. And so that is actually a discourse pattern that we see within different varieties is how far away the referent, the pronoun, is from the rest of the either the clause or the phrase. Can you believe when I was in grad school, I did take a whole course on anaphora, which is what it's called in linguistics. So I would take that example, and I would explain to the student that anaphora—the way that we relate the pronouns to what they refer to—actually varies very differently across languages. So American standard writing, American standard writing, has a short tolerance for different of the pronoun from the reference. But that's not true in black discursive culture, like when we're talking and telling stories, and it's not even true in other standardized varieties of different languages. So it helps students get that tool of understanding, well, why am I doing it, (laughs) right? If it's so wrong, what about why am I doing it? And so you might say, okay, this isn't part of someone's variety, but they'll start to say, okay, well, this is kind of how I'm getting my thoughts down, how I'm writing, how I'm thinking about it. But for other students in that same situation, this may be closer to how they talk or how they're thinking about it or part of their linguistic practices. And part of the skill we need in this beefing up how we think about teaching writing is disambiguating those and seeing also when they overlap
1: fascinating Anne. i'm sure our listeners have so many questions so we're gonna have to do a whole other show uh thank you all for listening to school zoom with dan schwartz and denise pope thank you Anne, for being here if you missed any of this episode listen anytime on demand with the sewers xm app and anywhere you listen to podcasts
0: from the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Poe on SiriusXM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand online or with the SiriusXM app.